I would like to see much more the traditional countryside. I would like to see much more of the, the low culture that has been disappeared. I would like to see no states, but a massive com a political community made up of incredibly and an, an, an immense fragmentation of people of all sorts that nonetheless are aware that they need each other to prosper. No people with a sense of national identity, but people more with a sense of Europeanness as openness, no? I'm European because I'm open. I'm European because I'm, I, I would actually, what I would like to see is the humanism, the humanistic values, the humanism and the universal values that the European Union praises itself in the preamble to its constitution, to the Lisbon Treaty, no? Which is really the preamble before the articles is, we believe in this because it's the, her the humanist heritage of Europe. I would like to see this in space. I would like to see this in terms of space, a space in terms of housing, in terms of schooling, in terms of enjoyment you know, of, of, of nature that was for everybody, not only for the rich and the wealthy. You know? The European Pavilion Podcast. Welcome back to the European Pavilion podcast, a series produced as part of the European Pavilion program launched by the European Cultural Foundation in 2020. For more information about this initiative, check out our website at culturalfoundation.eu. And again, I just found the last year so, so really enlightening. It really clarified, I think, for very many people It helped as the whole system of everyday life was so disrupted. I think everyone has began to see very clearly of how our lives are structured. So as a rule, we, don't, we never notice infrastructure until it stops working. So we don't worry. We don't even notice that we have running water unless we don't have any. And then suddenly we realize how much we use of this running water every day and how we depend on it. So the same with the last year. I think that people understood that, after all, we are all part of nature and we are biological individuals. My name is Agle Rinzevichute. I am Associate Professor of Criminology and Sociology at Kingston University in London. I am originally from Lithuania, but I consider myself European. I have lived in... Russia, Hungary, Sweden, France, and uh, since 2015 I'm based in the United Kingdom. I think it would, it would be interesting to take this idea forward and maybe to take this idea of uh, the socio-biological individual and to look at what are our infrastructures in Europe that sustain us as human beings, as, as bodies, as, uh, as mental persons. What is it on which we depend so much? And, and that, might, that might reveal something really, really quite unexpected. I think that might reveal indeed just how important art and cultural institutions are. We just don't think about them, but they are our mental infrastructure.
What you hear behind me are the blades of a wind turbine spinning through the air. Wind farms are common in Europe, and although their presence is sometimes intrusive, they have become part of our landscape and infrastructure. For the purpose of this podcast, we have increased the volume of the sound that otherwise would be almost imperceptible. In this new episode of the European Pavilion podcast, we discuss the elusive images of Europe and how they might challenge us to imagine our common future. Five guests from academia, art and architecture are joining us today. As we will hear, tackling the image of Europe is not only about what is visible, but it is also about what escapes our eye. The ideologies underlying Europe's project, the fears, dreams and hopes that shape it, and the infrastructure that supports our everyday life, and which paradoxically often goes unnoticed. It is a narrative, it's, a, it's, an, it's, a, it's ambitions people have, no? Uh, people have here much better lives, I think, in, especially in Western and Northern Europe than in most of the rest of the world, that is clear, no? However, the cost of this, there is almost no products, not only here, no? But especially here, because the power, of, the, the purchase power is higher here. People are richer, no? Most of the ambitions of wealth, what is a good life, no? How, how you live a prosperous life today has to do with a certain morality, with a certain material, I don't know, uh, po material possessions, uh, ways of creating relations, ways of being good, no? ways of living well that cannot exist without exploitation. Well, uh, my name is Rodrigo Buenlesi. I am Mexican. I am from Mexico City. I live in Nijmegen in the south of the Netherlands. Uh, I've been conducting this research on what we call Mm, cartopolitics, the making of politics through not only maps, but also through the cartographic organization uh, of the world and its cultures that maps evoke. And what I specialize uh, or what I'm interested in is in any case uh, using images to see the development you know, of, the, of the idea of Europe. Part one progress and prosperity. The advance of modern Europe is inseparable from the establishment of an idea of progress that has imposed itself on the collective imaginary. This has come to be seen as the only horizon and ultimate desire. An idea of progress where time will be perceived as linear, stretching towards a goal in search of efficiency. To start our conversation, I asked our guests to what extent this idea of progress still resonate today and how it affects our capacity to dream. More than linear progress, I would describe it more as savage with perfume or perfumed savagery. To me, this is what, in spite of all the changes that the idea of Europe has experienced since it started to be conceived by historians in the 16th century, no? Is this, we are, our civilization justifies all the savagery that we commit to preserve it. My name is Lena Dobrovolska. And I'm Theo Ormanskeeping. And we are an artist collaboration um, working since 2012. We work with photography, uh, documentary and narrative, filmmaking, installation and virtual reality. And our practice focuses on climate change, its political ecology, loss and damage, climate-induced migration and visual culture's relationship to the Anthropocene, which we 
prefer to call a capitalist sin. Also, I think that too much in Europe we focused upon thinking that we are experts in terms of progress, that we are the market leaders, we are the, the ones with the technology that have the solutions and have not listened and learned from countries in the global south like Bangladesh and listened to indigenous communities about the sort of technologies and knowledge which they have, which they have been using for thousands of years to live in a way which is already sustainable, it is already not surpassing planetary boundaries. In the European context, but also in a Western European culture, the idea of progress is strongly tied to the idea of growth. And in order to radically reimagine progress, we need to radically interrogate the ideology of growth, especially in relation to uh, the kind of guarding it principles of success and value. Currently, the success of the economic growth is measured by gross national product, amongst other things. But this idea is becoming dated, and I think we all feel it because the economic productivity for the sake of economic productivity is pointless. It's not improving people's well-being, both mental and physical, and it's not covering people's basic needs. And uh, Prime Minister of New Zealand, which is not a European nation, Jacinda Anders, famously stated that economic growth accompanied by worsening social outcomes is not success, it's in fact failure. This idea of progress, especially economic progress, is still very much linked to this the whole abandonation of the European Union. And this accounts especially for the latest members of the EU and also its potential candidates, which are, like in the case of Turkey, only not accepted because of human rights issues. But it's still this this um, this kind of formation of the EU is a kind of a never-ending struggle to slowly convey its values economically, politically, but also culturally to its new members. My name is Benedikt Stoll. I'm a trained architect and urban designer living and working in Berlin. I'm a co-founder and partner of the Artist Collective Guerilla Architects in Berlin and I teach at the Urban Design Department in, in Hanover. Yeah, I've been interested in the building of a new narrative for Europe since 2015 when I did my architectural diploma project called The European Dream, which was a magazine made of essays and maps and collages on the idea of the United States of Europe. So it's actually very difficult to think of Europe as a place beyond this idea of progress, as long as not all members of the European Union are kind of feel like they achieved something. They are part of this progress that us has been anticipated by the by them joining the European Union and have been been watching this progress a long time from the founding countries of the European Union. So I, I think there is still this kind of discrepancy between the founding countries and the new members who feel like they haven't really achieved that kind of progress. So I think this has to be some way incorporated or accommodated in thinking of a new narrative or a dream of Europe because I think we are probably also we are only able to think of a different image or narrative of Europe because we have reached a certain progress that allows us now to take the time and resources to think of something else I guess and so it says something that the economy could be organized differently but uh, it's very difficult of course to uh, adopt this idea as part of policy if you have this religious belief in economic growth. But the question is also how this economic growth is accounted. So if the balance sheet would include environmental damage and social costs, you know, due to lack of education and support systems, due to exploitative labor in terms of public health, 
if it would be accounted in terms of uh, reliance on the ex-colonial, I call it ex-colonial economy through the agricultural policy and trade policy. So, you know, by getting richer, Europe is uh, perpetuating poverty somewhere else. If you work even that into this idea of economic growth into progress. So then this growth and progress will not look very impressive at all. It's just that the way we present it. Prosperity is long and uphill, but despite the challenges, economic growth occurs when the market value of goods and services in an economy changes in technology have generated the greatest increase in economic growth. The Industrial Revolution created one of the greatest economic growth periods in history. Machines replace humans and animals. Imagine a world that provides healthy and fulfilling lives. Progress is perhaps Europe's most successful export and remains deeply embedded in people's imaginations. It is an old idea, often grounded in a pursuit of growth and accumulation. As Rodrigo Buenolasi points out, it is an idea that has justified many crimes and wrongdoings. But it has also fueled dreams and aspirations. Today, in the face of the challenges posed by the climate change and global inequalities, the idea of progress requires a complete rethink. Because prosperity is not just about accumulation of profit, debt and privilege, it is also about collective well-being and hospitality. Part 2. The image of Europe. It is time for a change of scenery. Let's leave our energy networks behind and roll into the local sports field. Our leisure infrastructure, parks, playgrounds, gardens, nature reserves, have proved their worth during the last year of lockdown. The COVID crisis has grounded us, humans, as biological entities. We are one with nature as we always have been. And since we are already on the sports field, let's take a moment to pause here. What could be more satisfying than getting together with family and friends to practice your favorite activity? Petanque football, the choice is yours. Our proposition is simple. Europe is struggling to overhaul its image in people's mind, so it is becoming increasingly difficult to trigger European sentiment. How do we understand the relationship between building a sense of belonging and building an image? Why is it so important to address the image of Europe? The main reason is like there already is a new image of Europe that is heavily discussed and protected by many right-wing and conservative politicians. That is this idea of fortress Europe and this kind of presumed danger of open borders would help many conservatives to uh, win a lot of elections in the last five years. 
So if we want to imagine a real Europe of open borders or of an open societies, we I guess we have to find a much more effective way to showcase the advantages of the European Union in relation to this right-wing propaganda and scaremongering. So, and this alternative form from the left that we, I guess, discuss here should then rely somehow on the values of the European Union around freedom from war and mobility and unity. But it's questionable if there are until now strong enough to compete with really strong emotions around fear and this kind of dangers and threats from the outside, outside the European borders, which are constructed and fostered by the far right. I think it is important to be rethinking this image or, you know, thinking about the representation of Europe in a wider context. So how it is actually situated within ecological crisis, within the economical crisis, with civic crisis in some way or the kind of the political public agency crisis. And yeah, I think that it's all about kind of reframing very situated image and finding intersections with the wider context. And that it's not just about Europe now, but it's about European mentality and thought process. It's about, for example, how Christian ideology has impacted the way we view and value things like nature, isn't it? Yeah. So it's, it's simultaneously about the past and the future and the present. Mm, for me, the idea, the, the image of Europe is important because I mean the image not only in the sense of a, a material image, but also the images that are evoked when we talk about about Europe. Uh, and for me, this is important because this is the main power of ideologies, especially identitary ideologies like nationalism or any kind of group identity based on this idea of territory, no? of being born in the territory, this old Greek idea of nativity, of being born from the soil and therefore having a bigger right or a bigger claim on the resources, material and immaterial, of the a particular place, especially with respect, with regard and in comparison to foreigners or to those that are uh, seen as immigrants or as outsiders. The concrete answer would be, uh, it is important because geopolitics, the most dramatic geopolitics that we see today in Europe, are driven by narratives. Uh, it is not material reality in that sense. The pressures that uh, these narratives are telling us we need to address uh, in terms of migration, migration is an excellent example, are not real. Migration is not a problem. Migration has been turned into a problem. The same as many of uh, other geopolitical dramas that have become existential for the European Union. I think that when one is thinking about the future of the EU, of uh, European identity as, um, one can say, as a kind of open identity that doesn't, uh, doesn't replicate those exclusions that the national identity often does, one has to think about family histories and one has to think about what particular individuals they're getting from that identity. So it's, it's a very complex and very challenging and very interesting task, I would say. What was European identity for me when I was in my 20s and the 90s, when the EU was uh, opening up to East European uh, accession is, is one thing, but for those young people who are entering the school education and university education now, Europe means something completely different. We, we maybe have even 
much more global view of a world where Europe is just one very small part of a large global puzzle. As Eglerin Sevichutse reminds us, the way we perceive Europe is informed by our personal experiences, our memories, and shifts with each generation. Nonetheless, addressing the image of Europe also means considering Europe in a broader context. It invites us, as Rodrigo Buenolasi suggests, to understand images as narratives that may or not have a material reality. For Benedict Stoll, the very image of Europe has been hijacked by right-wing populists and therefore is unavailable for a progressive agenda. Such appropriation needs to be urgently challenged. Yeah, I think first of all you have to challenge the idea which is present right now, which is this Europe as a fortress. Maybe the only the only image which is there now, which is actually discussed at a certain degree, and it's also kind of visible in many different ways. So this idea of the Europe of regions might be helpful in the way for our internal imagination of its of its different parts. But again, it doesn't really help. I think to define Europe to the outside, and or if it's the question if how we define this the unity to something else, I think that's maybe not really helpful. Yeah, I think we could maybe try to compare this new, or the, try to think of the new image of Europe in comparison to the building of the United States of America in sense also and how far uh, pop culture and also a certain way of uh, capitalist, capitalist propaganda brought um, brought brought this country into into being in a way, and I think I'm quite interested into looking at, at the pop culture or like uh, like industries like Hollywood how they still are a very key factor of defining and reminding consciously reminding people of this idea of the American dream and what this should mean for the citizens and also for all all countries around the world. If Hollywood plays such an important role in propagating the American way of life, it is because storytelling is key in establishing a sense of belonging. You must remember this A kiss is still a kiss Nine chances out of ten we both wind up at a concentration camp. Isn't that true, Louis? I'm afraid, Major Strauss, I would insist. You're saying this only to make me go. I'm saying it because it's true. Inside of us, we both know you belong with Victor. You're part of his work, the thing that keeps him going. If that plane leaves the ground and you're not with him, you'll regret it. Yes. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. But what about us? We'll always have Paris. We didn't have, we, we lost it until you came to Casablanca. We got it back last night. In their artistic work, Theo Hormon-Skipping and Lena Dobrovolska use storytelling to develop speculative scenarios that challenge our perception of the world. Let us recall here the Indian writer Amitav Ghosh, whose book, The Great Derangement, was an important source of inspiration when preparing this episode. What he argues in it is powerful and simple. What we cannot imagine, we cannot tell, therefore we cannot change. I think that 
in terms of storytelling, I think for us, we, we very much had to challenge ourselves to get over just purely repeating cautionary tales about the Anthropocene, the capitalist scene, because we realized that, okay, so yes, we can tell everyone and show everyone how destroyed everything is. And it's quite easy to do. It's easy to fall into this trap of showing destruction. How many Hollywood films are there about the end of the world, of asteroids, of climate apocalypses? But how useful is this? Because it generates a state of apathy, of fear, of personal climatic grief. Of That doesn't really lead to, to action. Whereas when you start to provoke and you try and collaboratively speculate upon a future which is better which challenges you to address not only the the past but your own uh, place within current society it is more activating and if even if somebody says that's not possible at least they asked the question why it might not be possible it's not just about visibility on or invisibility I think it's also about the role of the images or, or you know, storytelling, visual storytelling. And someone like Ursula Beenman uh, talks about um, that for her, for example, it's not so much about uh, a kind of representational properties of her, of her visual work. It's about the uh, their agency, you know, in terms of what action can they generate and also how they can contribute to the constitution and actually to the building of the reality and of the world that we in which we want to live in and you know and in that way she kind of argues that the visual paradigms can act upon the world and it's a big claim to make but i think particularly for someone who's working with climate change this is quite an important thing to consider um and i think that's what we are really doing particularly when we're moving between the boundaries or the territories of documentary and fiction and speculative thinking and speculative storytelling where you kind of dare to put a scenario out that is there to you know to really provoke uh, and demand uh, a certain change of status quo or, or a certain aspect of reality? My, my, my very specific theory is that there is an explosion of representations. We live in a world where there is an explosion of representations, ubiquitous everywhere screens. I don't think humanity has never looked at screens so constantly and so pervasively to find out what is happening around them. And I don't mean around them in terms of their neighborhood, but the entire world. Life wars uh, in Syria, no? in, in Iraq, we can see deployments, we can see cuisines from all around the world. No? And in a way, this, this is of course very interesting to see so much of the world. No? This is a very interesting historical experience, to con but at the same time, this information is of course not uh, innocent. We need to reclaim, my point is, we need to reclaim representations, representational power. No? Progressive ideas don't have an increasingly less representational power. They need to be seen, and they need to be seen as a real possibility. They, this, is, this requires lions, no? This requires people that are comfortable to challenge the society. This requires real lions, people that stand on their own two feet and say, yes, I don't see these lions. I see these lions in other places. You see them in Hong Kong, in Mexico City, the feminists, no? They challenge the state. Our societies are characterized by an overload of images. Therefore, as Rodrigo Buenolasi insists, there is a struggle to bring progressive ideas to the fore. We need images that challenge our preconceptions, narratives that inspire the best in us.
Part 3. Building Europe. We are now on the banks of a river. Rivers are both a natural landscape and a man-made infrastructure. They have shaped our cities, nurtured our culture, and facilitated the movement of goods and people while leaving their imprint on the land. Rivers meander along geological paths and they have no interest in passport controls. To wrap up our conversation, in the last part of this episode, we discuss how to create an image for Europe that can have a positive agency on our future. Of course, nothing is as simple as it might seem to start with, because what is perceived as negative or positive, it's also, it also depends on politics, it depends on the cultural context. Uh, there might be no consensus of what is a desirable future, which uh, is particularly evident, especially in contemporary societies, which are quite unequal, which are very diverse, where, you know, women might have one future project and conservative males might have different future projects. And when thinking about radically new ones or kind of really new and fresh attempts to to look into future, I, I see the greatest value in grassroots action, in spontaneous, coincidental, completely, wouldn't want to use the word organic, but all of these things which are set in motion when different people just move and encounter each other. So this could be artists, this could be students, this could be just people traveling. That's why Europe is really, for me, it is mobility. I think that what really shapes future and what's really promising for future, as long as people can move, learn about different places and encounter each other, the future will be taken care of. Maybe then would be also an exercise to try to accommodate the needs and dreams of people that come to Europe because they must have a much, I would say, much more powerful and maybe even emotional idea and reason why they come to Europe. Of course, for many of them, it's maybe just leaving a less prosperous and a place of war and terror, but maybe a place where they can live in more because of climate change, but still they have, I guess, some idea of Europe and why they come here, which is maybe in, one, in many cases economic progress. So they know they can maybe build up an, uh, a new life, a new business, a new family here. But their idea of Europe is maybe even stronger than ours because we are just used to being here and my generation is basically used to being up completely mobile and changing uh, living and working conditions all the time. For me, what is important is that the people that have a different idea of what Europe should be, either because they represented themselves or with their actions, that these people should think in terms of solidarity. What happens to you could happen to me, no? I am willing to risk, because there is no change without risk, no? I am willing to risk my, my salary, my job, my, my physical integrity to protect, you know? There is a shepherd in France, in the south of ours, Eru, I think it's his last name, and he's in the news because he helped some migrants to cross the border, some, I think, African migrants running away from Italy, trying to get into France, and he helped them cross the border, and then he was put into trial and tried to be, they, they were threatening with jail and a fine of around 20,000 euros. There are corporations, billion euros corporations in this continent that pay nothing in taxes. 
verdict has been delivered in the trial of a French farmer accused of shepherding illegal migrants from Italy into France. The highest constitutional authority ruled to enshrine the principle of fraternity in a landmark decision regarding a farmer who had offered aid to illegal migrants. Hero of the Alps or people smuggler, the case of Cédric Ibu has really divided French public opinion. He is a 37-year-old farmer a prison sentence. The prosecutor's office had requested eight months um, I think there is a way out of this, for example, is change that image, no? Go to the roots, go to the look at the neighborhoods today, who is there, no? There is a very interesting mix, no? Of the new the, the newcomers, all these new Europeans, all these new migrants, no? Why is this lost? This is beautiful. You go to Palermo now, and in the biggest market of Palermo, Sicily, you see this thousand-year-old idea of mixing everything into their cuisine that comes there in terms of immigration is still there. Why can we not take this little Sicilian geography or the Andalusian geography of the south of Spain? Whether it emerged from progressive grassroots movements, from new Europeans seeking a prosperous life, or from courageous citizens taking a stand, an image of Europe is hovering in the shadows, waiting to be brought to light. As Rodrigo Buenolasi emphasizes, such a humanist image does not have to be created, it already exists. When I think about Europe at its best, I think about layers of culture, of history, and the crossing and meeting of different cultures throughout time, be that cultures from Africa, from Central Asia, and how through this layering of history, we now have a dialogue and how contemporary culture is built upon that and reflected upon it to reassess Europe's position in, in the wider world. When you becoming, let's say, a citizen of the globe, okay, to simplify it, or when you see yourself as part of ecological, you know, F's ecosystem, is not that you are giving up any part of your identity. And I think that's very often may seem like, you know, that if you're not nationalistic or locally oriented, that you are giving up part of your identity or you, that you can't be patriotic, for example. And there is very little that is actually being said about what, what you are gaining by expanding your idea of belonging. And maybe that's the story that it's really important to be said, how much we're actually gaining in terms of friendships, in terms of new partnerships, in terms of new collaborators, in terms of new allies. And going back to home, how much you're expanding your idea of home, the places that you can call home, which are not just the places that you started from, that you, you, know, that you came from. Yeah, I think we can still see that today how also the EU is dealing with the management of ecosystems like uh, um, river deltas for example how different river deltas or areas that actually of course uh, trespass different countries and regions can be also managed under one unifying entity in some way that can something can be something that is can help us to think of new borders in the sense of how ecosystems define areas that can be managed by an entity that is not really defined by political entities, but then maybe more about the environmental space that is yeah, cohabited by different species in a way. How can we draw contours that remain open and moving, just like a river delta, changing, adapting, 
nonetheless shaping the water that flows through it. Plotting the Europe of tomorrow is not an easy task. It is neither a question of starting from a blank page nor of sticking to established narratives. Rather, it is about adding footnotes and creating spaces for negotiation. We believe that radical imagination is key and we believe that imagining is an act of courage and responsibility, an action that can determine what is to come in the future. In our next and final episode, we will celebrate Europe Day with three guests who reflect back on the history of the European project 71 years after the Schuman Declaration, charting Europe's history from coal and steel to a just transition. You listened to the European Pavilion Podcast.